people and nation. Thank you, brother. I'm going to ask uh, Keith Anderson to make his way on up here to the platform. Keith Anderson is, uh, for the last 12 years, has been chaplain at uh, campus pastor actually at uh, Bethel College. <laughs> and uh, uh, the, the ministry there, the work there with uh, Keith and his staff is uh, one that uh, many of us admire. And Keith and a good friend of his, Randy Reese, have been on campus with us the last two days, uh, helping us to get our minds around ways we can better serve uh, the student body here and mentoring and uh, small groups and things like that. And we asked Keith if he would come and uh, speak to us this morning. Keith is uh, someone I also count as a good friend. And I will resist all temptations to um, embarrass you right now, Keith. Thank you. But I just want to say, Lord, bless you. Uh, give us what God's given you. And welcome to Westmont College. Thank you, man. Let's welcome you. Thank you. I love to be in a college chapel on Friday. There's a different kind of energy that's in the place as you're thinking about... Uh, getting away from some classes for a little bit. Ben, I'm grateful to be here. It's always good to be with you. I want to give thanks to uh, Dana Sanders, my good buddy, for uh, helping to, to bring us here. I also want to apologize to you who are kind of in the line of sight of that glare that's kind of coming off the front up here. I, uh, first time I spoke at Biola a couple of years ago, uh, there was a light that was just beaming right on this good-looking part of my head, and um, the second day, the student body president got up to uh, reintroduce me, and he gave me a hat. Um, it was rude. No, that, you wouldn't do that here, would you? Good, good. Well, I want to start this morning by telling you about some interesting reading I've done lately, and uh, I know that will make about a third of you consider drifting off to sleep. Um, the rest of you sneaking out your palm pilots with those clever little lights on and starting to write papers that you should have finished last night. But thanks to a book by Bill Bryson, I spent some time recently reading about things out of the statistical abstract of the United States. And I think these are important things for you to know. Did you know that every year over 400,000 Americans suffer injuries involving beds? mattresses, and pillows. <laughs> now, somebody help me out with this. Think about this for a few minutes. That's almost 2,000 bed, mattress, or pillow injuries a day. Before we're done with chapel this morning, four of our fellow citizens will have had to go to the emergency room for an injury caused by their bedding. How does that happen? Uh, somebody's got to help me with this. Another 50,000 people in the United States are injured every year by pencils, pens, and desk accessories. For the life of me, I cannot figure out how I can get bodily harm from my highlighter. What, uh, the number of chair, sofa, and sofa bed injuries showed a dramatic increase of 30,000 people per year. That's a pretty troubling trend for those of us who sit down without being afraid. Um, 46,022 people were injured by sound recording equipment, more than all those injured by skateboards, razors, or trampoline. What do you do? You get your nose stuck in your CD player? I mean, I, I don't get this. 
I would also like to meet the 263,000 people injured every year by ceilings, walls, and inside panels. There has to be some amazing story in this. I have never once been hurt by my ceiling. Uh, but the people that I want to meet most, to 142,000 people who entered the emergency room last year for treatment related to injuries from, you ready for this? From their clothing. I mean, who does that? What are you suffering from? A compound pajama fracture, sweatpants burn. I mean, that means that some of us in this room have a greater risk of being injured by our underwear, our desk, or our ceiling than by any lethal weapon. Uh, and frankly, I don't find a lot of comfort in that. Um, but since some of you probably haven't read the statistical abstract of the United States recently, I just thought someone should come to Westmont and warn you uh, about those things. Here's the clever transition out of the, to the sermon. That was, you know, to warm you up on a Friday afternoon. But I want to spend some time with you this morning talking about Peter. We know as much about Simon Peter as we do about almost anyone in the Bible. Uh, it is Peter who moves with Jesus, walks with Jesus, fails Jesus, is forgiven by Jesus, and then walks into an entirely new relationship of knowing him as the resurrected, invisible Christ. Jesus was Peter's friend before the cross, and he's his friend after the resurrection. And that makes this relationship kind of unique. It makes it a, a, a great study if you want to know something about what it means to really walk and to live in this life with Jesus. Do you know that one of the common terms for discipleship in the ancient church was friendship with Jesus? When I learned that, I was intrigued. Is it really possible? Companionship, friendship, journeying with Jesus, knowing Jesus in some real way in my life. Is it really possible to have such a thing? Friendship with Jesus. Peter's life says yes. Jesus invites him to join him on a journey of friendship. So what if we just sit with that for a little while this morning? To be a Christian, just consider this. To be a Christian is to live in friendship with Jesus. Not afraid of him. Not so completely awed by him that you stand around looking holy when you know at that moment that you're not. Not always sure that you know who he really is. Not always able to understand him. And certainly not always able to go where he wants to take you, but ready to join him anyway on a journey of friendship. Peter's friendship with Jesus started in a unique way. And I'd like to read a text from Mark 1. And it's my tradition to ask people to stand for the reading of God's word. So I'd like you to please, to please stand. As Jesus passed along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you fish for people. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. As he went a little further, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, who were in the boat mending the nets. Immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. And then a text from Peter himself later in his life. He's speaking to a group of people who are exiles, the church in dispersion around Asia Minor. 
And he says to them and he says to us, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, in order that you may proclaim the mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the word of God. You may be seated. So how many times have they talked prior to this moment of call? It's a good question. I have no idea. Peter knew a little something about Jesus. But here's what I get when I listen to that text, that that simple kind of text. There's a call. They they follow him. and and and, And Mark's word is immediately... He calls, they immediately followed him. He speaks the word, and immediately it happens. It's one of Mark's favorite words in the gospel. But this is what I get when I listen to that text. I get the notion that Peter was taken in by Jesus, by his words, by his way, by his ideas, by his style. Whatever got it started, Peter was taken in by Jesus. He hears Jesus call him, and somehow he almost can't say no, even though he had no idea where it would lead. Friendship with Jesus doesn't start with a roadmap, a chronology, or a timetable. It starts with a call to join a community of friends. I think it's fair to say that Peter had no clue where it would take him, but he was taken in by Jesus, and that was all that mattered somehow. And when you read these stories in the Gospel, I want to I ask you, I want to I press you hard, please don't make them little lessons in discipleship. Don't make them little uh, sermonettes for Christianettes, as a friend of mine calls them. Seven little tips for how to live an interesting life. Read them as they are. Real stories of real people trying to live real life, figuring things out the way we do, on the way, as we go, figuring it out in the process. Kierkegaard got it right after all. He said, we live life forward, but we understand life backward. We don't understand it until after we've been on the journey for a while. So the Gospels are stories of people very much like you and me, well, except that they had darker skin than most of us here, and they sounded probably more like Yasser Arafat than my governor, Jesse Ventura. And they were culturally different than the middle-class world that most of us know. But they were real people asking real questions and wondering about real things and Peter doesn't have a Bible in his hand as he walks around that tells him where friendship with Jesus is going to lead him. He only has a call, an invitation. Peter, follow me. Peter, come with me. Peter, join me. Peter, join the movement. I'm told it wasn't normal for a rabbi to seek out students and call them as Jesus did. That it usually happened the other way around. The rabbi would wait until good students came seeking the rabbi, those students who were teachable, ready, curious. The rabbis would wait, looking for the best and the brightest to come to them, those with high ACT scores, National Honor Society, good resume, good references. And it's almost in this text in Mark as if Jesus does it in exactly the opposite way, as if he randomly walks up to four people and says, hey, you want to follow me? You want to go with me? That's the way it looks in Mark. Now, we know it wasn't quite that simple because we also know that Jesus spent a long night praying that the Father would lead him 
to those whom he should call. But Jesus scandalized this rabbinic custom and he called them to follow. And I wonder how that affected Peter and, and his friends. Maybe that's why they did it with such abandonment, because they didn't know what to expect. They didn't know what was coming. This didn't fit any little box of how it's supposed to be. They didn't know what the next step would be, but, but that's what it means, after all, to follow. It means that you're not in charge. It means that you're following somebody who knows where they're going. It means that you're not in control, that you just agree to go with somebody who is in control and knows where they're going to take you. We call that faith. Scripture says we walk by faith, not by sight. One writer says, but that's not the strangest thing. The strangest thing is that they went along with him. Not one of them or two of them, but all of them. He called and they followed, for which we tend to give them all the credit. We say, says this writer, what strength, what courage, what faith these four must have had to do what they did, sacrificing everything to go after him. What heroes they were. And the writer says, well, what nonsense. According to Mark, there was nothing hard about it at all. Jesus called and they followed, period. They didn't know him. They were not waiting for him. Chances are that they wouldn't have described themselves as religious types, but they took one look at him and that was it. No angst, no torn hearts, no backward glances. They just dropped what was in their hands and went after him without saying a single word. It was not as if they decided something. It was more like something happened to them, almost something supernaturally beyond their control. And I think about that a lot, and I wonder about that. As Mark tells it, they dropped their nets and they followed him immediately. If you can believe a writer like Mark, then maybe. And I would say almost certainly it had to have something to do with God, more to do with God than about them. Because they're like me, not courageous, not heroic not looking for some grand discipleship moment to leave everything and go and follow Jesus, just minding my own business, living my life. And then it comes. Like Peter, I get taken in. And I think it's happened for some of you in this place. And I think it'll happen for more of you if you keep hanging out where Jesus is. Barbara Brown Taylor says, this is not a story about us. This is a story about God and about God's ability not only to call us but also to create us as a people who are able to follow. Able to follow because we cannot take our eyes off the one who calls us because he seems to know what we hunger for and because he seems to be good. In that God-drenched moment of their turning to follow, that's where the miracle occurred. Their lives flowed in the same direction as God's life. Their wills were not two, three, or four, but one will. And I have to tell you, that's what I want more than anything else in life. For my life to flow in the stream of God's life. For my heart to beat with the things that that matter to God. To be swept up in this power of it. To be taken in by friendship with Jesus. There is life that is no more profound than one that flows in the same stream as God's life and God's power. Not very long ago, I sat in a room on the sixth floor of a building in uptown Chicago, the most racially and economically integrated neighborhood in the city. Uh, 50 student, 57 students were there with me for a class on urban ministry. And up in the front of the room, there were about six of our graduates who had once sat in 
the rest of the room where those other students were now sitting. And these six were involved in ministries in the inner city of Chicago, and they were there to tell their stories. And I listened to them. And one after the other, they all said something just like this. They said, I wasn't really looking for this. I didn't intend to serve Jesus in the city, to teach in this inner city school on the south side, to to be an administrator to an inner city youth organization among gangs on the west side, to raise my newborn child in a neighborhood over here where we just saw one of our dear friends killed by gangs. I wasn't planning on this. I was just standing around one day and I was taken in by Jesus and He called me to follow. And here I am. I'm doing something with my life that may be the toughest thing I will ever do. But they all said this. I am part of something that is so big, so cosmic, so amazing that I can't imagine giving my life to anything other than this at this moment in time. That's what they said. They were called by Jesus to join him on a journey of friendship that took him to places they never expected. Took him to places that were very different than their homes. But they wouldn't change it because they know that their lives are flowing in the flow of God's life. Not a lot of you might want to do that. I don't know. I don't know you well enough to know if you'd really be interested in that kind of life. My hunch is that a lot of you wouldn't because it's something that asks a lot from you. And the American culture doesn't ask a lot from you. It just tells you what it's going to give you. Convenience, comfort, security, safety. But a journey of friendship with Jesus that starts a lot like these fishermen leads us into the flow of God's power and demands some things from you. These guys were just standing around mending their nets, doing their everyday job. But they were mending their nets. Do you ever think about that? Tony Campolo said they must have been terrible fishermen. They were always mending their nets. He wants to know why their nets were always broken. But in the midst of that everyday life, as they did what they were supposed to be doing, just doing their job, Jesus came and said, come on, let's go, join me. I wouldn't have done it, I don't think. Be honest about that. At least they would have stopped and said, Well, who are you? Uh, tell me where you're going. I would have been cautious. I would have said, Why? You know, what does this have to do with me? Your thing is over there. My thing is over here. I got this career thing. I've got this graduate school. I've got this plan here. I've got this all laid out for me. I know where I'm going. Why follow you? I would have been careful. But in the miracle of God's way of doing things like Peter, in my life, in the life of my students in Chicago, get regularly swept up into something bigger than we know. And and like Peter, we somehow can't ultimately say no. There's a child, children's author, who writes some very funny kids' books on discipleship. His name is Mike Thaler. One of his books is an introduction to Moses. Remember the guy on the mountain with the Ten Commandments? That guy? Thaler's book is called Moses, Take Two Tablets and Call Me in the Morning. Uh, It's a great title. I'm not sure the kids get it, but it gives the parents a little bit of a laugh when they read it. You may not know this, but this following Jesus thing goes on all of your life, even when you're old. 
And Thaler said, I was content the first 60 years of my life with a fast food relationship with God from the drive-through window. At the age of 60, I came into the banquet by inviting Jesus Christ fully into my life. Since then, he said, my life has been a glorious feast. Got swept up into this thing at age 60, taken in by Jesus, moving from the fast food window to the banquet table. I don't know about you, but I'm tired of fast food living, tired of fast food spirituality. I want that banquet feast. Friendship with Jesus isn't about knowing everything there is to know. It's about being taken in by something so large that we can't say no. You think Peter knew all the doctrines of the church at that moment? You think he understood all of the intellectual and theological teachings with certainty? Not Peter and not me. I'm still curious about some of those things, but I'm not waiting until I figure them all out. Because Jesus doesn't ask us to wait till we get it all straight and, and, and articulated perfectly and, and we get the worldview thing and everything theologically, just all, all our questions are answered. No, Jesus says, follow me. Where are we going on the journey? Don't know. But when we go, when we get up and get going, Jesus is saying to us, you ought to be ready for adventure. You ought to be ready for surprise, for growth, for the unexpected. Because whatever else we know this, we're on the move with him. And he knows where he's going and that's enough. And Jesus shows up and we're taken in by that. One writer said, I think sometimes we read this story too narrowly. I'm not sure that following Jesus is always a matter of leaving everything behind. That's what it meant for Andrew and Simon and James and John. That's what following meant in their lives. But if the story is about being swept into the flow of God's will and giving ourselves over to it, then probably it means there's a different story for every one of us with our own particular lives. And the writer said, sometimes following may mean staying at home. It may mean letting the hired servants go and taking care of Zebedee when he gets too old to fish. Sometimes following may mean casting the same old nets in a new way or for a different reason. It may mean doing something different with the fish you catch or spending the money they bring at the market in a different way. It may mean reorganizing the whole fishing business so that the drifters down at the pier will have work to do and so that everyone who works receives a decent wage. It may mean doing less every day, not more. And I know at Westmont you don't believe that. It may mean doing less every day not more, so that there's time to watch how the light dances on the water and how those happy fish leap out of it at dusk, happy to have outsmarted you one more time. A man had battled cancer and was given the gift of health. His courage and his determination caused him, along with his gift of healing, to bounce back from the edge of his impending death. He and his wife were able to celebrate Christmas together at home, and his pastor suggested that they celebrate communion in their home on Christmas Day. The family gathered, and there were several generations of them, including the youngest, who was an 11-year-old named Joshua. And after they placed the bread and the wine on the table, they asked if there were any questions. The pastor asked if there were any questions before they started, and Joshua asked if he could sit in on the communion and be part of it. 
And the pastor said, sure, do you understand what all of this means? Joshua took the body and blood of Christ, and as they were ready to say the final prayer, he blurted out, Sir, how can you hear God speak to you? Listen to the pastor tell the rest of the story. So where this question came from, I have no idea. I paused for a moment and said, probably in a condescending tone, Well, Joshua, if you listen very carefully, you will know when God speaks to you. It may not be an audible voice, or it might not happen right away, but if you really listen you will hear God speak. The writer said the problem is the problem with children is they believe you. So immediately Joshua squeezed his eyes, scrunched his body into listening mode and started listening. He said, I had given Joshua the adult answer to his question, never expecting him to put the answer to the test so soon. And then all of a sudden the voice said, I hear him. Joshua shouts out, I hear him. I heard God speak. I honestly don't think any of us in the room really believe Joshua heard God speak. We were trying to be nice, but we weren't expecting God to actually show up. But the pastor said, what did he say? He said, I was patronizing him, fully expecting some childish response. Joshua looked straight into my eyes, his own eyes wide with wonder. Jesus said, don't forget me. And the writer said, that's the problem with Jesus. Sometimes he shows up and we're taken in. Well, the story of Jesus and Peter continues on until some months later there's this really odd moment when Jesus says to Peter and all of them, who do people say I am? But you kind of know in the text it's like a warm-up for the real exam question and he finally gets to it, the biggie. Now who do you say I am? This time Peter gets it right. He blurts out his confession. He says, you're the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. But the story there doesn't stop with Peter's declaration or with Peter any more than your story of faith or mine stops with you. That's the part we have to reclaim and relearn, you and I. This faith thing is not primarily about you and me and what we do and what we're learning. Our part is to respond when he calls. To stay open. And that assumes a dramatic thing. It assumes that God is doing something, saying something, coming near. So it's that Peter declares faith in Jesus and in the movement of that story, the most remarkable thing occurs. When Peter declares faith in Jesus, Jesus declares faith in Peter. Jesus says, You're Peter. Literally the rock, your Petros, and your destiny is to be a rock. You're the first stone in this edifice of those who call themselves Christians. And I love the fact that Peter writes that text later, come to him a living stone, though rejected by mortals, chosen and precious in God's sight. And like living stones, let yourselves be built into a spiritual house. Peter, the rock, finally figures out his part in this whole following thing. He's one little stone in this grand building that the God is building. You're Peter, the first stone in the new kingdom I will build. To be, to declare faith in Jesus is to be built into a new and great kingdom. A priesthood, a people, those who have received mercy. You're Peter. To declare faith in Peter will begin a lifelong journey of beginnings. Gregory of Nyssa, an early Christian father, says that Christian faith is always about beginnings. It's always about the next step. It's always about the process. Peter, 
in our friendship, it's important for you to get this identity thing straight, to know who you are. You are one whom I have called. I had a fascinating and wonderful conversation with my 15-year-old niece last summer. She's really pretty wise. She's a beautiful girl, a stud athlete, an excellent student, just everything you would expect from her gene pool. Uh, and I asked her what she thought about most as she headed off back to high school. You know what she said? 15 years old. She said, I want to remember who I am. I don't want to let my friends tell me who I am. Who tells you who you are? Who gives you your identity? Peter's identity was transformed by his friendship with Jesus. He began to understand something of his truest identity, not that imposter self, that that persona, that, that mask that we live out of most of the time, but the deepest, truest part of himself, that image of God in his soul self. A well-known motivational speaker got up once and held up a $100 bill in front of the whole audience and said, I want to give this $100 bill to one of you. Who would like this? And hands went up all over the place. He said, I'm going to give this to one of you, but first let me do this. And he crumpled it up. And he said, now who wants to have this $100 bill? And all the hands stayed up in the air. He said, I am going to give this to one of you in this room. I thought about having Ben do that this morning, but he only had small change in his pocket, so it wouldn't have had the same effect. And he said, well, what if I do this? He dropped it on the ground. He began to grind it into the floor with his shoe. And he picked it up all crumpled and dirty, and he said, now, who still wants it? And still every hand was up in the air. And he looked at him, and he said... There's an important lesson in this. No matter what I did to the money, no matter what happened to it, you still wanted it because it did not decrease its value. It's still worth 100 bucks. He said, many times in our lives, we are dropped, crumpled, and ground into the dirt by the decisions we have made, by the circumstances of our lives. We feel as though we are worthless. But no matter what we've done, no matter what has happened, you will never lose your value in God's eyes as the beloved called of God. To God, dirty or clean, crumpled or finely creased, you are still priceless. You are still loved. God is crazy in love with you. In time, I'm convinced that Peter began to experience that. I know it's what every one of you in this room is desperate for, and some of you are literally dying for it. You're doing crazy things to get what you need most, to discover that God holds you in the palm of his hand, writes his name on his hand, and looks at that hand every day and says, this one, you, I love. Last Christmas, my daughter gave me something that can only happen once in my life. She made me a grandfather for the first time in my life. His name is Benjamin, and he has a face that makes you smile just to see it. I'm going through some, uh, some hard times in these past months. When I get particularly prone to, uh, to get down, my wife Wendy takes that picture of Benjamin. She comes up to me, and she sticks it in my face, and she says... 
She says, the way you feel about that little boy, that's not even close to the way God feels about you. Do you know that? Do you ever feel that? You are the called by Jesus Christ. He walks up in the crowd and he picks you out and says, come on, follow me. Not because you're so great, not because you had a a great high school resume, not because you're doing great things at Westmont, but because I love you. Jesus invited Peter and he invites you and me to be about something that's greater than we alone can be. He said, I'm going to build a community. We call it the church. I loved your word that we're part of the blood that that binds us together as one. What a great word for us to understand, especially in this individualized culture of North America. We don't believe that here very much. We kind of think it's about us. Your word was a prophetic word to me this morning, brother. I appreciate that. Do you want your life to count for something of great value? Then, whether you got it all figured out or not, you've got to say yes when Jesus calls you to follow, and you've got to see what happens. Once you declare allegiance to him, then he takes you for a ride that, who knows where it's going to go. But I know one thing. I know this. I know that you're not always going to get it right. The ancient vision of spirituality that I have come to depend on so deeply, this ancient ancient understanding of discipleship was something very different. One monastic writer put it in words that I can understand because it it just works for me. He said, I fall down and I get up again. I fall down and I get up again. I fall down and I get up again. And I know about that falling down business because I live that way. Not only on icy sidewalks in Minnesota, but and sometimes failing to be my truest self, sometimes in betraying things I believe deeply, sometimes in failing those things I've given my life to, just like Peter. Like Peter will do long after he and Jesus have started this friendship. The Peter factor. Do you think you're going to get it right? Well, forget it. There is never a time in your life when you get it all right and all together. It's about faith. It's about getting up again. Read the book of Hebrews. It's a long list of human, flawed, finite human beings. But people who have been called and loved by God. People who are invited wherever you are in the journey to take the next step. Brennan Manning is a good friend of mine. And I hope you have read his book, Abba's Child, or the Ragamuffin Gospel, and if not, I hope you will find him. In his newest book called Ruthless Trust, he writes a prayer that I want to use as I close this time, and Darnisha is going to come and and lead us in, in, in a moment of reflective music. But I want to ask you to sit with your eyes open and look at your hands because they're the the symbolic expression of what we give our lives to. And I want to pray Brennan's prayer and, and see if maybe there's some of you who can pray this along with him. Abba, 
into your hands I entrust my body, mind, and spirit in this entire day, morning, afternoon, evening, and night. Whatever you want of me, I want of me. Falling into you and trusting in you in the midst of my life. Into your heart I entrust my heart, feeble, distracted, insecure, uncertain. Abba, unto you I abandon myself in Jesus Christ our Lord.